You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Last week, I told you about the cockroaches I've had invading my kitchen. Well, this week we're going to be talking about another species which has been invading my area that I've only just become aware of. There are dozens of them all over the eastern suburbs of Sydney, hanging out at the beach, stealing clothes from swimmers and digging through rubbish behind the fish and chip shops. Now, our production manager, Danny, lives nearby and last week we found one just chilling in front of my house. So because Sydney is in lockdown, last week I had to deliver you a microphone so that we could record (laughs) this episode and we were just chatting out the front, socially distanced, of course. Of course. And that's when I saw it. I thought, is that a fox in broad daylight? (laughs) And then I was like, no, 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 no. Surely it's just a really foxy looking dog. But it was for sure a fox. (laughs) And I'm pretty new to the area. So I was pretty surprised to see a fox just chilling in my front yard. But you've seen them before, right, Danny? I have, but I've never seen one in direct sunlight because they're nocturnal, right? So it's pretty rare to see one sunbaking like that. I thought maybe <laughs> the little guy was sick or something. Oh, poor Mr. Fox. <laughs> it did look pretty cute, kind of like a cartoon, and definitely reminded me of Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's my trademark. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But yeah, there's heaps of them around here and they've actually been causing a lot of issues. Foxes traditionally like to court danger, hunt prey and outsmart predators. And that's what I'm actually good at. They kill the native wildlife plus people's pets. And while they may look pretty cute and cartoony, they're actually pretty dangerous and there's been A couple cases of people being bitten by them. No way. Look, I can imagine it would be pretty hard to get rid of them. Like, if I was a fox in the eastern suburbs, I'd be pretty stoked. Imagine the cheese boards you could eat from the beach picnics. And the view. I mean, this is prime real estate for a fox. Yes, 100%. These are some bougie, high-class foxes for sure. (laughs) Um, But apparently the council has been trying to get rid of them, but they can't introduce a baiting program or anything like that because if they were to do that, then they would be poisoning people's pets as well. And, you know... So many people around here have dogs. Yeah, right. So if they were to kill the foxes, they would kill the dogs as well, accidentally. Yeah, oh my exactly. <laughs> so that's not even an option for them. Absolutely not. And they tried to cage the foxes. What's that? What? I think it's a fox trap. Look at this. No, get away from there. They thought that would be a good solution because if they were to accidentally cage someone's dog then it wouldn't hurt the dog too badly yeah i guess if you come from over there and you're standing at this door to the squab shack this little gadget probably but that didn't work either the foxes are just too smart they're too cunning and the council didn't manage to catch a single fox
It's a real, real headache for the local council. They say that they're pretty much powerless um, when it comes to trying to get rid of this fox infestation. Whoa, so is there a solution to the problem? Well, like you were saying, Helena, the eastern suburbs is a pretty great place to be (laughs) if you're a fox. And as long as there are still leftover chippies on the beach, the foxes are just going to continue to thrive around here. So let's raise our boxes to our survival. I guess we're just going to have to learn to cohabitate. Yeah, we're just going to have to learn to live with them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this week we are continuing our series of stories produced by Melbourne University audio journalism students, and they've been responding to the theme of swarm. In our first story, Dier tells us about a swarm of a different kind of foxes. Flying foxes. I'm walking on the nature trail heading to the bat colony. Now I can see some bats hanging upside down the trees. It is winter now. There are not so many people visiting this site. There are some people passing by the viewing point and said it was amazing. I'm currently walking on the bats conservation area and here we can hear some voice of bats. They haven't started flying until now. They're beautiful to look at and they're actually really fun. If you watch them for a while, they're like, cheeky naughty children they fight and they smack each other and nico smith is a nature lover and contemporary painter she's also a fan of flying foxes there's been a lot of publicity about the good work that the flying foxes do for the ecology and you know for our environment so i think for every person that really dislikes them there's probably other people willing to protect them more and more bats are swarming in the city at night, which made some people fearful of them. But those flying foxes brought happiness and relaxation to Nico. The day that I was there that you're referring to that post, I could overhear someone saying how disgusting they were. Um, so, I mean, I really love them. That lady really disliked them and certainly COVID was not good. We are flying as a circle. We gather together and flying as a swan. Extreme weather events linked to the climate crisis are the main reason for the loss of habitat. Well, we do monitor the colony fairly regularly just to make sure all the bats are quite happy. Um, and during summer, um, on days that are above 40 degrees, the bats really struggle with the heat. So climate change is one of the big drivers as the flying foxes were uh, declining. Their numbers are declining. So at the moment, they're federally listed vulnerable, which is one step down from endangered. Erica Fizzi Tothop is a scientist and she's also a volunteer in Yarban Park. She reveals the main reason for flying foxes driving into the city. 
their normal diet is eucalyptus flowers and native fruits. As we kind of clear forests for farming and clear forests um, for logging and things like that, they're driven into the city where the, that's their last resort for food and fresh water. So that's why you'll often find them roosting near rivers, which is what we have at Yarrabin, and which is why they're going into people's backyards and eating their, the fruit from their fruit trees. They just don't have anything left in the wild. So that's kind of forcing them into the cities and, and creating this conflict between people living in the cities Why do they swarm every evening? According to Melbourne's Bad Box Monitoring Program, flying foxes are nocturnal, so at night they will fly away from their home roost to find food, then come back to their home roost in the morning. They are social animals and have some social hierarchy. Roosting in big groups can also help with predator avoidance. People try using loud noises and lights and smoke. So these these kind of measures to scare off a colony and prevent them from coming back just don't work long term because they're so nomadic. Changing habitats has been dangerous for the bat population. One of the main reasons is power lines. One of the more common reasons we get is electrocution,、um, but the pup will actually survive ninety five percent of the time. In those circumstances, we will normally have to call the power company. And then we'll take the pup in and hand raise the pup. We'll get a few pups that do just fall off bum and get found on the ground for whatever reason. The big reason we get orphan pups in is、uh, what we call heat events. The moon is shining and its pale light reaches into the forest. The voices from the swarming of bats have been wakening. People should know how important the coexistence of human and flying foxes. And their impact on our environment and life. That story was produced by Dear Hu. The supervising producer was Louisa Lim. The weapons trade is a huge part of the Australian economy, but many of us don't know much about the effects our weapons have around the world. In our next story, Maya speaks to activists campaigning to stop the flow of Australian weapons to West Papua. Making and selling weapons is a billion-dollar industry. The side of it we see in Australia is very sanitized. Think slick-looking ads with stylish colour grading, spouting buzzwords. Optimal security and environmentally sustainable mobility. Security requires well-equipped armed forces. The glossy ad campaigns don't mention the death and destruction Australian weapons cause overseas. A group of dedicated activists is exposing the reality of Australia's weapons trade and calling for collective action to put an end to the devastation. People might not be aware that. Australian weapons are being sold to Indonesia, and that these weapons are being used in West Papua. And they also might not be aware that the Australian SAS are training Indonesian special forces, and that the Australian Federal Police are training Indonesian special police units. One of our closest neighbours, West Papua, is currently involved in a decades-long brutal struggle for independence from Indonesia. It's a vastly one-sided conflict, with the Indonesian state benefiting from the support of foreign governments like our very own. Make West Papua safe. It's a very targeted campaign to support peace and justice in West Papua by slowing down or hopefully stopping the flow of weapons and training that come from foreign governments and corporations to the Indonesian army. 
Make West Papua Safe, and Wage Peace are two activist groups fighting to bring recognition to various human rights abuses in West Papua and around the world. Part of this battle is protesting arms conventions like Land Forces 21, which is being held in Brisbane this year. So Land Forces is a great big weapons dealing event where hundreds of weapons corporations and defence professionals will get together and spruik their wares to militaries and police forces. Land Forces is where the deals get done that result in war crimes in other countries, including West Papua. So why do we, as Australians, have such a blind spot when it comes to our actions overseas? Uh, Australians generally don't pay attention much to what's going on with militarism. But we're using Disrupt Land Forces as a type of campaign to, um, to bring people's minds together to see what is happening in the weapons trade. We all need to educate ourselves about like, oh, hey, this is happening. Australians have a culture of denial. I mean, look, look for the local Indigenous people themselves. There's a dark history made by the, the colonizer in this country and it comes the same with other countries that Australia have been involved with the, with, with the colonization. So There's been a media blackout on West Papua from the get-go. Australia is very complicit in the genocide that is happening in West Papua. For the Australian government and the Indonesian government, that information is something that they don't want out there. So they've gone to great effort to make sure that any media on the issue is silenced. It's starting to be heard a bit more now, and you know things are escalating there at the moment. But yeah, it's been a long road for West Papua to get an international voice. What can Australians do to hold our governments and corporations responsible for the blood on their hands? We can bring this story up here, especially in Australia, with, with the privilege we got. And we can ask straight away directly to a company like, hey, this is happening. Are you, are you accountable for this? This is your bullets. West Papua will be like a little cage, a little Pacific Palestine. And yeah, it's a plea for, for West Papuan people to ask for international community to be politically active and involved to support West Papua independence movement and also to bring justice to human rights violations in West Papua. Ultimately, I don't want there to be a weapons industry. It's a kind of hangover from patriarchal kind of my guns bigger than your gun, colonial conquest. Yeah, take the toys from the boys. How can we show solidarity and unity in a world that profits off violence? There's people within the arms manufacturing industry, there's people in the docks, there's people loading the ships, there's people all the way along the chain of supply, there are people. And those people can make a difference. Those people can choose not to partake in the war machine. They can choose to halt that production and to stop this genocide continuing and it's through direct action, it's through actually taking physical action that we can do this. That story was produced by Maya Ruth Pilbro. The supervising producer was Danny Stewart. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. 
If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Right now, parts of New South Wales are enduring their worst mouse plague in decades. In our next story, Angus looks into why these plagues keep happening. Millions and millions of mice. It's hard for us city folk to imagine the ground six inches thick with furry grey bodies scampering in every direction. We'd go out and we'd come home and we'd find some, you know, very pregnant little mouse would get under the kids' bed clothes and decide to have the babies in the bed. You'd set a mouse trap and you'd probably get four or five in that one mouse trap. He said you can hear them, the mice, they're there. You can hear them all over the place. John Goldsmith lived through three mouse plagues in 40 years as a farmer near Gunnedah in northern New South Wales. About 1957, 58, again probably in about the very early 60s and again in 84. John wasn't long out of school when the first plague struck. He remembers driving into town with his father at the wheel. He screamed to a stop. We had an old car that had a felt lining hood in it and that was all moving with the mice up in there. But he decided he had to pull up a stop because the mouse had decided that it wanted to get out of it. So he ran up one leg, which was the accelerator leg, and came down the other leg. But nothing compared to the plague of 84. John spent months trying to get some media coverage of what was happening in Gunnedah. When a TV crew from Channel 9 eventually visited the farm, they weren't prepared for what they would find. <laughs> give you a rough idea, the, Tim Klukas, the guy that did the interview, said, OK, I'll walk in this patch where there's a lot of mice and I'll ask you guys to turn all the lights on. And anyway, we turned it on and there was an almighty scream out of him. It's a living sea of mice. And he suddenly realised that the, uh, the mice wanted somewhere to hide. Uh, and up the legs of his pants was the best place to go. Next time it appeared, if you watch the TV, uh, no comment about it, but his uh, uh, pants legs are tucked in with his socks very tight, I tell you. You can't walk anywhere without walking on at least five, six, seven dozens of mice. Ah, uh, look, yeah, mice are everywhere where humans are. That's mouse expert Steve Henry. For most of 2021, he's been helping farmers in New South Wales deal with their worst mouse plague since 1984. You know, we provide these wonderful environments for mice to live in. So if you're talking about cropping systems, um, we're creating an environment with lots of shelter, lots of food. Similarly, in our houses and towns and around towns, we, we live in warm houses that have lots of food um, and lots of shelter places. As anyone that's lived in a share house will know, mice are breeding machines. They start breeding when they're six weeks old um, and they can have a litter of six to 10 babies every 19 to 21 days after that. Since European invasion, 90% of native vegetation in temperate Australia has been destroyed, making way for mouse-friendly monocrops, transport systems, and sprawling urban spaces. But Steve says mouse plagues are actually a really good time for some of our native species. So in Australia, we live in a boom-bust system. So as mouse numbers go up, that puts a lot of food in the system for predators. And so the survival of the predators then goes up. So how does it all end? With the same problems facing all species that swarm. As is the case in human populations, if you get a lot of interaction, that facilitates the spread of disease. The good news is mice aren't washing their hands and putting on masks. 
At the same time, they're running low on food, so they're becoming quite stressed. That also helps facilitate the spread of disease. Because they're running out of food, they start turning on the sick and weak ones. Mice, if they find a nest of babies and they're not their own, they're gonna eat them. But the effects of a plague linger long after the mice have gone. I spoke to one farmer who took 400 mice out of his house in one night. This has a significant psychological impact on rural communities and people just get sick of dealing with mice. I wonder how John feels looking back on the whole experience. I don't know, you didn't feel a lot about it. You just, the stink was terrible. The kids thought it was to a degree great fun uh, because of mice everywhere. The cats and dogs, you know, bat them round for a while. They were really keen and eager to start with, but in the end, uh, they just got sick of them too. Um, but I, it, it's just something you got there, you put up with them until that went. And when you hear the sound of a million tiny feet scurrying in the night, it's not so hard to see the parallels with these other natural disasters. A flood of mice leaving devastation in its wake. To be honest, there's nothing much you can do about it, really. A drought or a flood, turns out a mouse plague's the same. You live and die with the ups and downs of the land. That story was produced by Angus Thompson. The supervising producer was Mel Chun. In our final story, Jiayi looks into the growing number of robots taking over customer service roles in China's hotel industry. When visitors enter a hotel, they do not see anyone at the reception desk. Instead, a robot helps with the check-in process. When they need to eat, they simply click their phone and the robot automatically delivers the meal to their room. Are robots set to take over the customer service roles? Xiao Yangzhou is a travel lover who regularly stays in virus hotels. Last September, she went to a robot hotel for one night. When I walk through the door of the hotel, I'm welcomed by a robot of only one meter in height, who then takes me to the front desk to check in. After arriving at my room, the lights in the room, the air conditioning, the curtains and other things. I only need to say a few words and the robot in the room can handle them. All operations I can even do lying on the bed. When I get hungry, I order for home delivery and the robot would bring my food and water order directly to my room, which is so convenient. I'm a bit curious as to how the robot does all this. We have procured around 100 robots and have a comprehensive system behind them to support them. As the operator of a robot hotel, Yunhao Xu says that having a powerful intelligent computer system is a key to running a robot hotel. When a guest places an order in the system, the system will automatically assign a free robot to complete the task. For example, if a guest in a room needs a bottle of water after he places an order in the system, the robot can go directly to the warehouse to take out a bottle of water and deliver it into the guest room, and then return to the same place to wait for the next task. Our entire hotel is connected to the face recognition system. When a customer registers at the front desk, his photo and personal information are entered into the system.
It does sound that the robots are very powerful in the hotel, but she says that powerful robots are not the only reason why he built this robot hotel. Firstly, I feel that to reduce labor costs, robots are an excellent choice to replace human staff in hotels. A hotel robot can do about twice as much work as a person in a day, doing more for less money. We certainly choose robots. Secondly, the robots can provide for 24-hour service, which is human staff cannot do. With robots, we don't need to put too many people to work in the evenings. While there are many benefits to using robots in a hotel, Joe feels lonely and out of place without a real person or staff in a hotel. I asked the hotel manager questions about hailing a taxi, food, and entertainment, and they are happy to answer them. But now the robot cannot do this. The robots could only answer a few set questions, and when I asked them other questions, they were unable to give a response. Besides, the price of this robot hotel is high, so the number of the guests staying in the hotel is small. So it was a bit scary to leave the room at night. When I walked through the hotel lobby, all I could hear were my own breathing and footsteps, and the sound of the robots moving around. Hotel manager Xu acknowledged that. There are indeed many problems with using robots in hotels, but he thinks robots have a bright future. I think the future is still about robots. Although robots cannot guess what customers want or communicate with them as fluently as human staff can, they have ability that humans lack. Even a well-educated employee cannot speak dozens of languages with face with a customer from all over the world, but a robot can. For now, and for some time to come, robots will still not be able to completely replace hotel staff, but they will certainly grow in importance in the hotel industry. Last year, the world's first robot hotel announced that it would fire more than half of its robots because they had a lot of bugs and were causing more problems for visitors. So, whether the robots are a convenience or an inconvenience to the hotels is a question worth thinking about. That story was produced by Jiayi Yin. The supervising producer was Danny Stewart. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories. And pay our respects to elders past, present, and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with Sin and Three Triple R on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonarung lands, and Eight Triple C on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. This episode was mixed and compiled by Josh McKay. Emma Pham is our social media producer, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au.
You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.